Yes, Elon Musk is out a billion bucks or whatever he's going to be out. I'm sure he'll have another billion. But the people who are hurt by this are people who don't have access to internet. Look at what's happened since then. There has been just a deluge of what the Wall Street Journal has called regulatory harassment. You got the DOJ going after him, Southern District of New York, the FAA, the Federal Trade Commission, even the Fish and Wildlife Service going after him. Now you've got the FCC to add onto that pile of agencies that's going after Elon Musk. And it seems very clear to me that if Starlink was owned by someone other than Elon Musk or someone with different politics, than Elon Musk, they would still have that $1 billion. All right, folks, it is Thursday, the Thursday following Christmas. I hope you've not just unpacked all of those great gifts, but taken back what you need to get, maybe settled in a little, getting your New Year's plans ready to go. Well, we have a great show headed your way. Uh, the government under Joe Biden's direction, and this isn't like some conspiracy theory, he literally stood in front of the press corps and said, let's go after Elon Musk. And the message came through loud and clear. Agencies from the Fish and Wildlife Service to the Federal Communications Commission decided, we got it, boss. We're going after Elon Musk. But what he did and how he did it, how they did it is unbelievable. They're literally targeting him because they don't like what he's doing at the expense of providing the internet to a lot of low-income people and people who have a hard time accessing it. We're going to go through that with Brendan Carr, a commissioner of the FCC, a great great conversation about the rules, the regulations, what we're up against with respect to big tech and so much more. Let's get into it. Commissioner Carr, good to see you. I hope you had a good Christmas. Uh, very, very good. So good to be with you, Sean. Thanks so much. Yeah. So let me just start this conversation off in a, in a sort of a get to know you kind of way. What, what does the FCC have jurisdiction over for people who are wondering what it does and does not have the authority to regulate? Yeah, too many things uh, at this point. I think we have jurisdiction over too many. So the FCC is a, we'll call an independent regulator here in D.C. It's a five-member body. So three commissioners uh, are of the president's political party. So right now three are Democrats, and there's two of us that are Republicans. So I'm the senior Republican, and the FCC regulates everything from wireless service to the, you know, the, the cell phone carriers that are out there. We make the airwaves available for them. We can also help make it easier or harder to build out infrastructure. We also obviously regulate uh, the airwaves, so radio and television. We do public safety as well. We've done a lot of uh, activity, for instance, on national security, including Huawei and ZTE. So it's a, it's a really interesting time at the FCC where we cover a, a lot of interesting issues. But let me get this straight. Do you guys, I know you have authority over, so NBC, ABC, the public, public airwaves. What about cable? Yeah, we don't impose uh, content regulations on cable. So for instance, on broadcast TV and broadcast radio, we have certain sort of older content rules. So indecency, obscenity, those regulations. And then yeah, the FC licenses those broadcast TV and broadcast radio stations. So once every eight or 10 years, those licenses will come due and the FC has to decide uh, whether that licensee has been operating in what we call uh, the public interest. And that can be you know a thorough review or a pretty light review. All right, folks, now more than ever, it's smart to be ready in case of an unpredictable health emergency, right? Now more than ever, imagine that a health crisis strikes and the usual channels for medication are disrupted. Sound familiar? Hello, 2020. Uh, that's where contingency medical comes into play, providing you access to emergency packs of antibiotics for ordinary ailments like urinary tract infections, ear infections, strep throat, and so much more. Think about being ready for that unexpected 
that we all know is potentially around the corner. Contingency Medical even has symptom management medicines for everything from nausea to diarrhea, motion sickness, ensuring that you're up to date. You need to be ready in case something bad happens. You don't want to be running around trying to find out that everyone at pharmacy is out of something that you can't get in touch with your doctor. I've got some free samples of their ReadyPack Plus. I know that if something happens, I'm ready to go. Uh, Contingency Medical also offers free shipping on all packs. Prepare yourself and your family in case something goes wrong. So don't wait. Go to contingencymedical.com slash Spicer now and enter promo code Spicer for 20 bucks off. 20 bucks off your pack. Any pack that you pick at Contingency Medical, right? So go to contingencymedical.com slash Spicer. Use that promo code Spicer. And remember, Contingency Medical and its products are not intended as a substitute for professional medical treatment or advice. You should always consult with your healthcare provider. When it comes to the cable world, like either the distributors or the stations, the CNNs, the Foxes, what do you guys have jurisdiction over anything to do with them? No, not really. The FC doesn't license them. And so, you know, our jurisdiction over them, if any, uh, is very, very light. It's it's different than, as you point out, with licensed radio or licensed TV that have to come and get a license from the FCC and get it renewed. We don't license cable stations that way. So when we hear about things like equal time that says, hey, if one if NBC covers, you know, Joe Biden for 20 minutes, they have to cover Donald Trump or something like that. The cable companies don't have to abide by those same kind of restrictions. Yeah, those rules historically never really applied in the cable context or now what we call sort of online or streaming or podcasts. Obviously, they just applied uh, historically to broadcast radio and broadcast TV. But even now, almost all those rules have slowly been uh, unwound. Uh, principally, they, they came out on First Amendment grounds. In fact, the Fairness Doctrine, probably the most well-known of all those types of rules, was pulled back by the FCC in the 1980s. And really, if you think about it, the fairness doctrine wasn't very fair to conservatives. It ended up um, with a lot of bias that came as a result of that decision. So I think it's good that that one's been uh, in the rearview mirror for a little bit of time now. So I know there was a, a lot of discussion when Elon Musk took over Twitter, now called X. You were very outspoken about that acquisition, uh, a supportive of Elon Musk, because I think generally, like a lot of people on the right, recognize that this was good for free speech. But obviously, you shared publicly some concerns about the government uh, going after Elon Musk, saying that that Biden had almost targeted Elon Musk. Yeah, I think this is a, a real pattern that we're seeing. So just recently at the FCC, we voted as a commission. It was a three to two party line vote to revoke a nearly $1 billion infrastructure award that we had uh, provisionally given to Elon Musk's Starlink back in 2020. This was actually part of a, a $9 billion initiative that we launched uh, actually alongside President Trump back in 2020 to make sure that rural America would get high-speed internet service. And So what, Starlink, what is Starlink? Yeah, explain that for a minute. Yeah, so Starlink is this new generation of low-Earth orbit satellites that's ultimately owned by Elon Musk. There's about 5,000 of these satellites up there. And it's not like the traditional satellite that people may have been familiar with for you know generations, which was, if it provided internet at all, it was slow. This new generation of low-Earth orbit satellites, the system called Starlink, is providing very high speed, what we call 100 megabit per second, over 20 megabit per second. So really quality high-speed internet service. It's being used here in the U.S., but it's also probably well-known to people because it's something that's being relied on 
in war zones across the world. So Ukraine, the Ukrainian government has been relying on Starlink as one example to keep their internet connectivity up and running uh, during that conflict over there. So Starlink is the system that's uh, first been licensed back in 2019. That's been underway now for a, a couple of years. So, so it's interesting. I mean, for, for people who, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is your world, not mine, but so most people are used to getting their internet from like Comcast or Fios or what have you, right? But if you don't live in a an urban area, especially people out in, in the Midwest or whatever, they'll get it from a satellite. Is that right? Potentially, yeah. There's a couple of interesting, you know, competing technologies. As you noted out, most people probably are familiar with wired cable or wired fiber, um, those types of connections that offer really high speed service. But uh, this new generation of low earth orbit satellite is one that's essentially providing close to fiber-like speeds, close to uh, cable-like speeds, but delivered directly from a satellite. And you'll get one of those, you know, dishes um, that are small that you can actually just place on a table or um, at a location outside. And you can get, again, virtually overnight, high-speed service where it might take a fiber provider years and years to, you know, trench the fiber and pull the conduit and eventually get to you. So it's a really good new competitive uh, development that consumers like. And Starlink's not the only one. Actually, Amazon is in the process of launching their own uh, satellite system called Kuiper. So we're optimistic there'll be some competition there as well. Okay. So what's the rub with Elon? He, he, he has Starlink. It's providing this internet service. You guys award a contract. What's the beef? Yeah. So back in 2020, we held this uh, award open and Starlink won about uh, almost a billion dollars to bring high-speed service to something like 640,000 homes and locations in rural America spread across 35 states. All was going well. And then flash forward to this recent FCC decision and the FCC effectively revoked that $1 billion award under a decision that just does not withstand scrutiny under the law or the facts or policy at its core, the FCC said, you know, we don't think that Starlink is that reliable of a technology such that we should allow them to continue to have this $1 billion. But that doesn't make sense for a variety of reasons. One, the U.S. government right now is entering into multi-million dollar contracts with Starlink to provide our military with connectivity. So when it absolutely matters the most, uh, the government's relying on Starlink. So this idea that it wasn't a reliable technology didn't make sense. In fact, I think the only way to think about this FCC decision is to go back a year ago to the White House. President Biden stood behind the podium adorned with the official seal of the President of the United States, and he said that Elon Musk is worth looking into. And then a reporter asked how. <laughs> the president looked down and he said, there's a lot of ways, and there certainly are. Look at what's happened since then. There has been just a deluge of what the Wall Street Journal has called regulatory harassment. you got the DOJ going after him, Southern District of New York, the FAA, the Federal Trade Commission. You've got even the Fish and Wildlife Service going after him. Now you've got the FCC to add onto that pile of agencies that's going after Elon Musk. And it seems very clear to me that if Starlink was owned by someone other than Elon Musk or someone with different politics than Elon Musk, they would still have that $1 billion. And that's not so, really so about you got Elon. This, this four other colleagues, when you go to them and say, hey guys, uh, this looks a little fishy, do they say anything? Well, this was 3-2. So my fellow Republican, uh, Commissioner Simonton, dissented along with me. And uh, my Democrat colleagues are good people, but I guess we just didn't see uh, eye to eye on this one. And it's funny, too, because, you know, it's not like Elon Musk really is the one that's hurt by this. Okay, he doesn't get a billion dollars, but he's got enough money. But it's rural America that ends up bearing right, right, the brunt of it. That's what I'm saying, though, that it's not when you say they're good people, right? Or you don't see eye to eye. Eye to eye is, hey, I, I want to 
go to this restaurant. You want to go to that restaurant. I want to spend $10. You want to spend 20. When you said to them, Hey guys, we voted on this. We awarded him a billion dollars. There's no reason. I mean, that's what I don't get. That's not seeing eye to eye. That's literally going after someone with a political vendetta. Look, I think that's the only pattern here that makes sense. Because again, it's not just this one FCC decision, it's all these others. And you could say, well, Elon Musk does a lot of business and therefore he's going to run in with the government a lot. Okay, I get that. But look individually at all of these cases. You had the NLRB going after Tesla, Elon Musk's Tesla, for dress code violations. Okay, you had, <laughs> you had the Federal Trade Commission going after to try to get the identity of journalists that were getting access to information as part of the Twitter files reveal. You had the Fish and Wildlife Service that went after him because there was reportedly a handful of bobwhite quail eggs and some blue land crabs that got charred as a result of a SpaceX launch. I mean, to me, that sounds more like surfing I, I get it, but that's federal why case. All right, folks, are you looking to secure your financial future? I know I was, right? You've got real estate, maybe some stocks, a bunch of other things, a 401k, an IRA. But how are financial metals part of that? Because you look at the price of gold, the price of silver, so many of the other precious metals, how they've done over time, it's a smart bet. And the folks at Bishop Gold Group can sit down with you and talk to you about how to convert an IRA, a 401, whatever it is, just make it part of your planning. I did it. I sat down. I talked to them about what made sense for me. I got precious metals as part of my portfolio now. And here's the thing. You can keep them. They can keep them. You will sit down with the folks at Bishop Gold Group and come up with a plan that's right for you, depending on how much you have, what you want, where you want to store it. Whenever you're ready to cash it in, you call them back and say, hey, here's what I have. I need to cash it out. They'll make that happen. That's the beauty. These are folks that I know, that I trust, that I talk to. So if you want to join me, then go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean. You get a special promotion for kicking off your journey to financial freedom uh, and diversification with Bishop Gold Group and Precious Metals. Or you can call 844-984-1616. But go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean to see how you can make Precious Metals part of your financial freedom journey. Thanks. This isn't some massive commission. There's three Democratic members. Don't you at some point just say to them, I don't know their names. Hey, Bob, Susie, uh, <laughs> what's going on? Right? I mean, doesn't that just, at some point you say, can, I, can you guys explain why we're here? Why are we doing this? What is the grounds for this action that we want to take? That's what I don't get. If, if this was 10,000 people, I'd say, okay, it's, it's a bureaucracy. There's three people that are driving this train. Yeah, that's right. Look, you know, Sean, have you heard the the analogy of the uh, the turtle and the scorpion? So the uh, the scorpion goes to the turtle and says, "Hey, will you give me a ride across the pond?" And the turtle says, "No, nah, I don't think so because you're gonna sting me and we're gonna drown and it's not gonna be good." And the scorpion says, "No, I'd never sting you when you're giving me a ride. If I did, we'd both drown." And so the turtle reluctantly lets him get on his back and he's swimming him across the pond. They get to the the deep middle and the scorpion stings the turtle. And they both start to sink and drown. And the turtle says, why'd you do that? And the scorpion looks up with his last breath and says, it is my nature. And so I think right. that's a lot of what we do at the end of the day is, you know, uh, I don't blame people for necessarily uh, their political or ideological leanings. But again, it's very clear to me that a pattern of regulatory harassment has emerged across all the of thing, these agencies. But, but, so the thing that is interesting, and you brought this up, is Yes, Elon Musk is out a billion bucks or whatever he's going to be out. And I'm sure he'll have another billion. But the people who are hurt by this are people who don't have access to the internet. Now, 
a lot of those people probably don't live in areas that vote for Democrats. Maybe that's it. But why would you intentionally? And it's not like, is there another, is there a competitor that's going to replace them? Some union shop that's going to help them? Because I don't understand why you intentionally hurt him when you're really hurting Americans that don't have access. And all these people whine and moan about access to good internet, learning, you know, the, the, the gap that exists between people who the haves and the have nots. It's like, this isn't hurting uh, Elon Musk or rich people. This is hurting people who need access to this. Yeah, you're right. And look, there is another component of this, which is the Biden administration right now has their own $40 billion uh, broadband internet initiative called Internet for All. And so now these areas that were going to get serviced by Starlink, they're not going to get anything right now, but they now become eligible for service through that Biden administration program. And notably, as, as you sort of indicated, that Biden program is a union initiative. It, uh -huh. it, it relies very heavily on union labor to dig all that fiber. And so uh, there's that element as well that's out there. And so, um, you know, it's it's a tough one, but look, also the, the taxpayer is the one that gets hit. So the subsidy that we were gonna provide at the federal government to Starlink to connect these 640,000 people was gonna be about $1,300 per uh, household. The Biden administration's plan, because they use union labor, because it has this fiber preference as opposed to being technology neutral, there's estimates there that it's gonna cost almost $5,000 per household. And so it's gonna be a significant hit to the American taxpayer. If we do in fact provide service to these people again, these rural communities, we're gonna be doing so um, in a much more expensive way. And also look separately too, here's another point. We, we need to be sort of backing American innovators and entrepreneurs because China is launching their own version of this low earth orbit satellite system. Obviously China always you know, copies and steals technologies from other leaders. Their technology is not called Starlink, it's called StarNet, so very similar. And that could be- <laughs> It's not and, McDonald's, it's McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that could be up and running by 2028. And think about that for a second from a geopolitical perspective, that China is gonna have the capacity to deliver high speed internet service anywhere in the globe, potentially starting as early as 2028. And you think about that tied in with Belt and Road, and tied in with the fact that when uh, China provides internet connectivity, it'll come with their internet uh, content filters and moderation policies. And so I think as a country, as you, we start to stare down 2028 in these uh, Chinese competitors to Starlink, it's more reason why we need to have the back of American entrepreneurs today. Well, and to your point, it's not like they're going to offer it cheap. It's like Huawei computers, right? They'll offer it cheap. It'll suck up our data. They'll be able to turn off and on when they want. They will continue to control us. This is, again, I just, I, I laugh sometimes. If it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. This idea that we talk about the threat that China poses, and yet we hurt options that will allow us to free ourselves from China. Instead, we're giving them a foothold, to your point, in the next year and a half or whatever. When they launch this, it's going to come in dirt cheap. Americans are going to suck it up because they do. And then they're going to figure out how to, A, control us, and B, suck up more of our data. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And again, I think when you go back to you know that White House podium with Biden standing there, and again, in my read, very clearly giving the green light to bureaucrats across D.C., the administrative state, to go after Elon Musk. Again, I don't think you can separate that from uh, views on the left about free speech. You know, the idea that Elon Musk is going to open up and did open up um, Twitter X to a greater diversity of views is something that uh, is not looked upon very favorably. But it's odd to me, too, because if you if you go back, you know, a short period of time in our political lives, 
the idea of free speech and diversity of views was a very progressive view. In fact, I'll give you these two bookend events. You know, back in 2012, right around the election, President Obama went to Facebook's Silicon Valley headquarters and he gave a speech there about the then emerging free flow of information on social media, on the internet. And President Obama described it as, quote, part of what makes for a healthy democracy. Now, flash forward just 10 years, 2022, President Obama went a couple miles down the road to Stanford University and gave a very different speech about the free flow of information on the internet. In fact, he described it as, quote, a threat to our democracy. So think about those two bookend events, President Obama 2012, President Obama 2022, going from the free flow of information is uh, uh, makes for a healthy democracy to, our threat, to, to a threat to our democracy. Well, what happened between those two events? Well, it was the, it was the 2016 election. And yeah. I think this idea that the free flow of information, this idea that we can get around media gatekeepers, that we can get around take makers and people can discuss ideas for themselves has unfortunately as a cultural matter been viewed as a real threat um, by what used to be um, the staunchest defenders of free speech in this country, the left. And again, I don't think you can separate that dynamic from what we're seeing at the FCC, the NLRB, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, all the way down. So speaking of free speech and, and these platforms, when this thing was all in its infancy, back in the 90s, uh, there was an act in Congress in 1996 that had a provision in it. It's widely known within the industry as Section 230. And yeah. this is how internet companies are judged, right? They're, and, it, and it specifically talks about their liability. So right now, they're, they're, not, they're treated as publishers, right? So they, they can't be sued. They enjoy a ton of protection. Um, but but they're they're not, and that's the thing that's really interesting about this. Explain to people what what the battle is over Section two thirty. Yeah, Section two thirty is, is really interesting. It does two main things for purposes of this discussion. One thing, Section two thirty C one, it effectively says that if you as a social media company leave someone else's speech up on your website, you're not liable for that speech if it happens to be tortious or libelous. Uh, or otherwise sort of unlawful in some way. That's actually a good provision because it encourages people to leave speech up there. Uh, you can argue that there's some unbalance there because traditional uh, newspapers don't have that type of protection. But the real problem with 230 is the second piece, which is 230C2, which has been read by courts to say, not only are you fine if you leave speech up, but you can censor speech, carte blanche, however you want, and you're not liable at all for that either. And I think that's the real mistake because it ends up putting a thumb on the scale towards So censorship. why was it done? It wanted, what, what was the intention when it was? The idea back in the 1990s, this is when you had the, the prodigy messaging boards, as you sort of indicated. <laughs> and the idea was that, that you'd have an, an individual moderator that'd be making sort of an individual decision. Okay, I'm going to take this particular speech down or that particular speech down. But it was a very light form of moderation. It was not a provision that was passed with these you know, massive machine learning, these algorithms that we have today. And so it's sort of a, a provision that maybe made sense back in the 1990s, but it's not fit for the technology. And what it's ended up doing is giving this bonus statutory protection uh, in favor of censorship. So I've long been of the view that we need to do something about that. Look, keep 230C1 or some provision like that. But we don't need to have a statutory thumb on the scale in favor of censorship. And this other thing with censorship too is that I think we have to keep an eye on is this, which is uh, it's not necessarily a question about should this speech be silenced or not. I think you can have that debate. It's really a question about where does that silencing take place? And my view is that you should empower individuals that are participating in the digital town square 
to decide for themselves. If you want to mute someone or not follow someone right. or block certain words, you should do it. But this idea that we should have someone centralized in Silicon Valley or the government deciding say, yeah. who should censor, it's a mistake. And it's a mistake because it's a system-wide error. If you get it wrong, if you get the New York Post, Hunter Biden story, wrong. If you get it wrong about, you know, the costs and benefits of masking for young kids with speech, if you get those things wrong at a centralized point in the system, then there's a real, real harm that comes from that. And so what we need to be doing instead is getting, you know, Facebook and Twitter out of the censorship game itself, empower individual users. And I think that's a much better environment, let alone what we've seen now from what Chairman Jordan and others have exposed in terms of the Biden administration courting directly with Silicon Valley to censor speech. We, we've got to get away from that. So just to be clear, if, if the Washington Post and the New York Times or NBC says something or censor something, they, they can, legal action could be taken against them. But right now, a Facebook, you can't. Is that right? That's right. That's part of the, the way that 230 works. And again, it's not necessarily what Congress meant, but it's been sort of in, expansively interpreted by the courts over the years. And it needs to be hewed back to either its language by the FCC, which we could do, or fundamentally reformed, which is requiring an act of Congress. And is that breakdown entirely on, on ideological or party lines? It's probably right. I mean, look, as a general matter, when you talk about content moderation or speech, um, Republicans and Democrats are both unhappy about the status quo, but we tend to be pulling on opposite ends of the same thread. Republicans tend to want more speech, less censorship, and Democrats tend to want more censorship, what they would call, you know, hate speech controls and things like that. So uh, it does, unfortunately, break down a lot by uh, by party line when it comes to these types of reforms on 230. So why, like, for example, under the Trump administration, we had the House and the Senate, full full trifecta there. Why didn't something get done either legislatively or within the FCC itself? You know, look, it's a real good question. Um, I think part of it is that this was an issue where President Trump was ahead of the curve. He saw the problem that was emerging from censorship on social media. Um, and it, the, the center of the House and the Senate at the moment uh, back then really wasn't there, but it is now. Uh, and the President Trump had the Commerce Department late uh, in 2020 file a petition for rulemaking at the FCC, which our then chair, Ajit Pai, put out for comment, which would have reformed Section 230, uh, but January 20 rolled around before there was much progress made on that effort. So I think we're at a point in time now where, uh, again, it was a very sort of leading edge, ahead of the curve issue for the first two years, three years of the Trump administration. But now I think it's table stakes. I think you now have a critical mass of conservatives, um, you know, that, that, that run the gamut uh, of the party that are realize that we have to fundamentally reform Section 230 in order to make sure that there's the free flow of information on the internet. So Trump wins, or any other Republican for that matter, uh, and takes back over. You guys go back in the majority. How high is that on the priority list? Yeah, I think it's up there. I think it's up there. I think, you know, we, we have to find a way to rein in big tech. I think Section 230 is, you know, a top three issue when it comes to that. I think there's other issues we need to tackle in parallel, uh, including on some national security issues where we need to come go back on, you know, TikTok. That's not necessarily going to be an FCC issue. Maybe it's FTC, maybe it's Congress, but national security, reining in big tech. Um, I think those are going to be the top issues that um, an FCC, whenever the votes are there, should should hit the ground running on. And, and is there agreement, do you think, or would that be a litmus test, would you imagine, for someone's confirmation of where they stood on Section 230? 
I think that there's a critical mass, you know, when you're talking about Republicans in particular that, you know, understand and are committed to, to Section 230 reform. I think, you know, the party has moved pretty significantly on the, that issue compared to two or three years ago. So I think almost anybody at this point would agree and understand that we need to do 230 reform. All right, folks, longtime listeners to the show are going to know about Delta Rescue, deltarescue.org, the largest no-kill sanctuary in the world. It was founded by my friend, Leo Grillo. And Leo basically one day found a Doberman that was in need of serious help and nutrition. He rescued that Doberman. He named the Doberman Delta. Delta stands for dedication and everlasting love to animals. It's become Leo's mission. And what Delta Rescue does every single day for all sorts of animals. Go to deltarescue.org. Take a look at the videos and the material there. They rely solely on our contributions. If you're an animal lover, go check out deltarescue.org and tell me that you just can't see how what great work they do and why we should be helping them. Um, I've rescued three dogs myself. I know what it's like uh, to go out there and help them. This is a no-kill sanctuary for life. It's a mission for them. And they rely solely on our contributions. So five, 10, 100 bucks, whatever you can give, is super helpful. But more importantly, Leo wants to make this an enduring cause, something that we don't have to worry about just funding month to month, year to year, forever, to make sure that the work of Delta Rescue lives on. They've got an estate planning package on their website, deltarescue.org. Aside from the videos and all the testimonials, go check out that estate planning guide and see if you can make it part of your enduring mission when you pass to make Delta Rescue part of your estate planning. Check it out, download it. It's all free. They can help you walk through it. Please visit deltarescue.org. If you're an animal lover like me, you're going to want to do this. Thank you. I know this sounds kind of in the weeds, but what would be the difference between what the FCC could do within itself and what Congress might want to do? Like, is there is there a daylight between that? Because one is a legislative fix and one is sort of a, a regulatory fix. Yeah, that's right. At the FCC, you know, we can interpret the words in Section 230, meaning we could say, look, courts have interpreted the C2 exemption, this, this carte blanche for censoring speech too broadly. It actually only is going to apply to a narrower set of cases, um, but we can't eliminate the exception altogether. So Congress could come in and say, look, 230 no longer applies at all to taking down speech. We could just come in and say it still applies there because the statute is fairly clear about that, but it applies to a narrower number of cases. So you would see less censorship, but to get fully where we need to go, you need to amend the law and Congress would have to do that. So when the, when you guys engage with these big tech firms, especially Meta, Facebook, what, what where do they come down on this? Are they opposed to it? Do they want more? Do they want to get out of this business? Do they like the protection? What what is their thought thinking on this? You know, it's a mix. You'll see some entities. I think Meta, Facebook is part of these that is sort of themselves advocated for two thirty reform. Of course, they want it to be of a particular variety of two thirty reform that works for them. You know, whenever you sort of impose new regulations, sometimes the incumbent tries to take control of those reforms and make it so it's easy for them and harder for a new entrant. So I think it's a mixed bag. But net net, we have to figure out the right path forward um, that's going to promote speech and isn't going to be something that simply you know solidifies Facebook or some other social media companies. Um, current advantage so we can have smaller startups continue to emerge and compete. And is there daylight between, say, Facebook, Google, Twitter? I mean, are they all sort of vote in block on, on where they want to end up? Or is it each company's got a different view? 
And I think they're largely in the same spot. You know, uh, Facebook stood up this, what they call sort of their internal Supreme Court, which is, you know, both part of them and they claim not part of them to try to give them some separation from some of these content moderation decisions. But in the main, they all sort of ride together. In fact, when you see state laws, state efforts to effectively do their own version of reforming Section 230. So you had Florida do this, you had Texas do this. Uh, ultimately, the trade association that represents all those companies gets together and challenges those laws, almost you know, regardless of the the specific flavor of uh, reform that's at issue. You know, it's funny though. I I've watched a lot of the hearings that Congress has held on this, and we heard terms like shadow banning and censorship. I I it always seems to go in one direction, and I can never find an instance where somebody on the left says, yeah, I got screwed, I got banned, here's a topic that didn't come up. Every single major instance that I've ever heard of is somebody on the right being locked out, shut out, censored, taken down, blocked. And and there's always a random excuse like, oh, we didn't mean it or that was the algorithm. But it it seems very one-sided and I don't think that that's debatable. Yeah, look, I think the the revelations that have come to light, particularly, again, the work that, you know, Chairman Jordan and others have done to expose um, the close coordination between the Biden administration and Silicon Valley towards censoring Americans, you know, protected free speech rights is concerning uh, in the Twitter files and, you know, similar files that we've seen now on other social media platforms are concerning. And, and you're right. I do think the censorship tends to cut one way, but it's also it's just it's a challenge for the country because when we, the way we solve big, big problems is by talking about them, is about uh, airing perspectives, you know, looking at it from every single possible angle. And if we're being censored or self-censoring, then as a country, I, I, we're, we're harmed. We're not going to be coming up with the best ideas, the best possible solutions. And so I think that's fundamentally why we've got to get back to this embrace of diversity. Again, you know, look, the, to go back to the idea of the, of the, the progressive left, the modern day op-ed launched on the pages of the New York Times in 1972. There was an editor, John Oakes, and he said his words, diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of democracy. The moment we start insisting that everyone think the same way we do, our democratic way of life is in jeopardy. That was a progressive viewpoint. In 1972, the New York Times wanted ideas printed in their publication that were different from the ideas that their editors have. Now, flash forward to to modern times and the Tom Cotton op-ed in, in the New York Times, and exactly. it's a very, very different thing. And it's more of an enforcement of orthodoxy now. But as a country, we've got to get back to that, you know, historically progressive embrace of diversity of views. But, but it's funny, you talk about the people who work at these companies, right? And you once in a while, you'll see something flare up. It's it's They are progressives. And I kind of have this view of garbage in, garbage out. You, and this is what worries me about AI, is that, if the people creating AI or the people creating the platform at Facebook, what have you, are all from a left-leaning perspective, and I don't think that's, again, I don't think that's a debatable thing. They, they're very open about it. They're very clear about it. Then you're going to get a left-leaning outcome, right? Left in, left out. And I think, again, that's what troubles me about AI is they it, it's, it starts to learn to basically censor itself, to shut out ideas, to block the ability to create. I mean, there's there's these tests where people ask it to create a speech on Donald Trump and it'll say, I cannot do that because it's hate-filled or what have you. I mean, and, but, but that's the problem is that I think yeah. fundamentally that when you look at the construct of, of a lot of these companies, it's, it's all people on the left building it. And then we wonder why 
you know, there's shadow bands and sensors and they say, well, it's the algorithm. And to some extent, I kind of believe them because I think to myself, you created that. Yeah. You told it that to do that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, look, and on this issue with AI, I think we got to find what I would describe as sort of the, the middle bowl of porridge with regulation. We need some sort of pro-speech guardrails that are similar to the ideas that you're laying out there. How do we make sure there's not sort of political bias built into these systems? I think we can go too far. And I think, frankly, the Biden administration has. They've got this, you know, multiple hundred plus page report that looks like something I'm used to seeing out of my colleagues in Brussels, where they just overstudy things and overregulate things. So I think we should not proceed with zero regulation of AI. I don't think we should proceed with the Biden administration sort of Brussels approach of overregulating in the infancy, but we need some guardrails to make sure there isn't those types of biases um, in sort of political discrimination that's being imbued in these systems as they get going. The thing that I wonder about AI, though, is that we're not the only ones that are working on it. So you have China and all these other countries, and they don't need to tell it to do certain things. So you could have us trying to regulate it in certain ways, and yet other AI applications, you know, sort of free to do what they have or taking direction from, say, China. Yeah, I mean, look, I do think if you flash forward, we're largely going to be, um, and I think sort of two parallel internet universes. There's going to be, you know, the CCP version and perhaps everybody else. And I think this, you know, Starlink, Starnet divide is going to be part of it. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, decoupling from China, but look, China's the one decoupling from us. They they parrot our technology, they copy our technology, they steal our technologies, and then they kick our companies out. Uh, yeah. Once they've sucked them dry as much as possible, and I think you're going to see the same thing happen with AI uh, and with the internet more generally. And again, that's you know to where we started from. You know, we got to have the backs of America's entrepreneurs because again, if you look at uh, Belt and Road and you start adding in Starnet on top of that, you know, the geopolitics in 2028 when China can beam internet um, filter the way it likes to all of Africa, all of South America, that's going to be a really uh, challenging world that I don't think we're preparing for sufficiently, and we're particularly not preparing for it sufficiently by this regulatory harassment uh, of, of Elon Musk and his Starlink system. No, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And that we're going to wake up one day and it's going to be too late, especially with China. I, I One other aspect of what China's doing, though, is something that's bothered me for a long time. I know you've been very outspoken about it, is, is the use of TikTok. And I think yeah. it's a national security threat. I think, and it's funny because people will say to me, oh, I cannot tell you how many times somebody says to me, I don't care that they have my data. I'm not important. Yeah, no, it's a real challenge. And so TikTok is fundamentally two issues. One is surveillance and the second is foreign influence. On surveillance, you're right. They are scooping up, hoovering up data on millions and millions of Americans. And Okay, so an individual says, what do I care? They've got my data. Like, okay, fine. But when the CCP is able to granularly comb through data for 300, you know, potentially, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans, they can get an insight and a perspective into our culture, into how to persuade us. Um, that is like nothing we've seen before. Uh, and again, the second piece is foreign influence. You know, you've seen it with the rise of sort of pro-Hamas content, but you saw it as well in our 2022 election where they sort of targeted select politicians for criticism. And so we absolutely need to take action against TikTok and we can do it. Uh, look, on the, on the broadcast side, we started talking early on about these, you know, broadcast television license process that the FCC runs, I can assure you uh, that the CCP bike dance uh, would not be able to purchase a, you know, radio or TV broadcast license without passing a national security review that they couldn't pass. And yet they're reaching orders of magnitude 
more people through this application than anybody ever could through an FCC license or broadcaster. So we need to look at that. But again, I, I think in the main, we have enough reason for action because of the data that they're taking. You know, look, it's like someone uses a pen and they can write the most, you know, salacious anti-American propaganda they want. And at least in that context, the government can't take the pen. But the moment they take that pen and pick a lock with it, well, then all of a sudden we can take that pen away. And that's what's happened with TikTok. There is this foreign influence element of it, which is complicated from a First Amendment perspective. But we don't need to reach that question because what they're doing is they're taking the data and they're sending it back to China. And that conduct, not the content, the conduct that they're doing there is more than sufficient for us to require a what I call a genuine divestment, which is to um, get ByteDance and the CCP out of its position of control over the application. So- if you're a parent listening right now, your kid's on TikTok, what does Brendan Carr say to them as a FCC commissioner about their kid's use of it? You know, like within the first 30 minutes of accounts being set up on TikTok, there was a study cited by the New York Times that showed that the accounts were sending young girls uh, eating disorder content um, and, and sort of other sort of self-harm content right off the bat. And that's not the content that China is sending to its kids over the version of the app Doyan that's available in China. It's sending things like museum exhibits, science experiments, educational material. And again, parents think of this like Facebook or Instagram where you are following a network of friends or family. That is not at all how TikTok works. As soon as an account is set up for your kid, the algorithm, the company, ByteDance, which is as CCP officials working for it, is deciding what content to send to your kid. It's almost like they recognize that Technology is influencing kids' development, and they make their domestic version a spinach version of TikTok, while they ship the opium version to the rest of the world. And so it's a very different type of social media than what you know parents are used to in terms of you know grandma's photos on Facebook. That's not what's happening here. Yeah, and I, I think for all of those reasons, people need to understand that it is not something uh, that is appropriate for kids and and it's not about your data it's about the influence it's about the national security threat brendan i want to ask you this uh in a previous interview back a couple of years ago you said this since the 2016 election the far left has hopped from hoax to hoax to hoax <laughs> to explain how it lost to president trump at the ballot box we saw that with the russia hoax in 2016 in 2020 you mentioned how they they censored the Hunter Biden story that we now know through research and polling would have affected the outcome of a lot of people's votes. What worries you about this upcoming election? Well, look, I do think it continues to be worrisome when you see the degree of censorship that can take place online. I think, you know, one thing that's very different is, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter. I think that can make a big difference and not because of his politics, being right or, or left or wherever it ends up, but because he has made an ideological commitment to a diversity of views on that platform. I think that can be very helpful um, as we go into this election. So if you have a, a leftist view, you can express it. If you have a view that cuts more right, you can express it. I think having that as a free speech platform um, is actually some comfort uh, for a change heading into uh, 2024 for all political parties. But do you worry, I mean, like the, the Hunter Biden story was a complete blackout uh, I mean, you talk about the, the the airwaves that you guys regulate. The the news organizations, quote unquote, wouldn't allow that story to be told. The platforms censored it, um, and yet, and and as I said, we know 
from data now that people would have changed their vote because of that. Do you worry that these platforms, we talk about election interference. I do worry about how the news media is being used and how these platforms are being used to not just get ideas out, but prevent certain ideas that would help one candidate or another. And again, it always seems to go against the folks on the right. Yeah, look, I mean, I'd feel much more comfortable um, if, you know, for instance, the House was able to pass some type of 230 reform uh, early next year in 2024. I'd feel more comfortable uh, if there was some action taken on TikTok uh, by the House uh, early, you know, this year as well here in 2024. Um, I think I think those are some of the most important things that we can do to, to put us in a better spot, um, you know, as, as, as we move forward. Well, I, I, I do too. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think considering the current makeup of Congress, we're going to see anything happen. Um, and, and I guess the question, the last thing I'll ask you is, I mean, but are there consequences? That's what I think the current makeup of 230 gives these guys the cover. They know that they can't, that there's no, there's no consequences for, for, for doing what they do, meaning blocking a story, censoring a story, shadow banning people and censoring them. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're getting more and more of this exposed. I think that's a good thing. We've got these state laws, Florida and Texas, they're probably going to go up to the Supreme Court. So those are areas where we are seeing some changes. And hopefully if those cases are sustained by the Supreme Court, it does sort of set a baseline pro-speech uh, framework, even though, you know, those are just two states. But hopefully, you know, other states and the platforms themselves take a clue from those state laws and, and have much more of, a, of an embrace of diversity of, of use here. Okay. Commissioner Brendan Carr of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. If I don't see you again, have a very happy new year. And to all of you, we've got one more show left in 2023 and then onward to 2024. So join us tomorrow for another great show. Thanks for joining us. Please make sure you subscribe, hit that notification button, five-star review on Apple. We'll see you back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show.